Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Nice. So I guess it's my turn to, to do that teaching thing. Yeah. So uh, when, when I was looking at what I might talk about and, and planning ahead, I remembered that a few episodes ago you mentioned the Santa Cruz Island Fox being delisted from the endangered species list. I did? You did, as, as something nice that happened in 2018. Oh! You should listen to this show, History Honeys. It's pretty good. <laughs> you might like I it. I just record it. So so I thought to myself, like, what is the list? Like, whose list is it? Where did it come from? What do they do? Who's in charge of the list? Who's in charge of that dang list? So I wanted to find out more. And and so that is what we're talking about today, the endangered species list. So we're basically talking about a, almost a whole lot of dead animals. So this is a bummer episode. You should give a bummer warning. And it looks like we already have one. Thank you very much, dear. <laughs> now, the thing is, there's more than one list of endangered species. There's actually a whole lot of lists. Like breaking them up based on what they are? I mean, there's a lot of people making lists, and each oh. group that has a list has, has their own list. Oh. By their own criteria. Oh. I hope you're going to tell me what list we normally hear about then. Yes, yes, I am. Okay. And, and the thing is that making a list is a bureaucratic solution to a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Bureaucratic fixes, they, they require specificity. So in order to define their scope, there must be a list. Yeah. So that is why all, all these different bodies have to compile a list okay. or trust another body enough to say, we, we will use theirs. Oh, no one does that. <laughs> so so that, that is where these different lists come from, because they serve different purposes. And we're going to talk about two, the, the ones that you are most likely to hear about, at least for our American listeners, are uh, the, the list created by the uh, 1973 Endangered Species Act of the United States government mm -hmm. and the IUCN Red List. What's I-C-U-N mean? The, the IUCN is the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Okay. And we're going to wait on that one. Let, let's talk about our, our hometown heroes, the uh, uh, federal government's endangered species list. I think I trust the other list more. <laughs> well, it is global, I guess. So, so it has that for it. I mean, we just had like... A government shutdown, so I'm assuming a lot of animals died and didn't make it on this list. You're skipping ahead, dear. Oh! <laughs> so, uh, environmentalism in America, as we know it, at least, it was starting to take shape around the dawn of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, in this window, in, in this wide window, we're talking about Yellowstone and Yosemite being founded, uh, the Sierra Club and the Audubon Society being founded, the National Park Service created in 1916, mm -hmm. a lot of different fronts. And, and the, the focus was on the, these, the natural majesty of, of these vistas, these untouched, unspoiled and, and truly unique areas. Mm -hmm. uh, and just how, how nice it is to go out in, in the sunshine and the water and hear birdsong. Yeah. Now, the concept of extinction as a problem, and, and beyond that, a preventable problem, was introduced to the public uh, by the advocacy of George Bird Grinnell for the American buffalo. Ah. 
Yeah. Uh, in 1902, there were only 23 left within the, the boundaries of Yellowstone. There, there used to be a lot. <laughs> it used to just be Roman. Yeah, not not so much in, in 1902. It was... Uh, uh, you know what happened? Oregon Trail. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And you can only carry 100 pounds back to the wagon. So yeah, and the thinking? rest you just leave. So why are you shooting the buffalo? Shoot the deer. You can carry all that meat back. You oh. learn a lot during the mer- during that game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's too bad the actual pioneers didn't have it to know. <laughs> If only the pioneers <laughs> had the Apple IIe at their disposal. Yeah. I don't know where they'd plug it in, but it would have been nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the first conservation law uh, that, that leads on the trail uh, mm-hmm. to the endangered species list is the Lacey Act of 1900. It prohibited trade in wildlife, fish, and plants that have been illegally taken, possessed, transported, or sold. Okay. It, it was basically a law against poaching mm-hmm. uh, and, and interstate commerce in poaching. Uh, but it crucially authorized the, the Secretary of the Interior to aid in restoring game and birds in parts of the U.S. where they had become extinct or rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the first federal law concerning the conservation of animals. Because it is restriction on poaching it reflects like the government's limited reach at the time it is just regulating interstate commerce mm-hmm. right a, a very strict interpretation of congress's powers in in you know the the constitution this is where the national imagination was okay the lacy act is still in effect after a number of amendments uh it is now primarily concerned with limiting invasive species Ah, yes. And uh, the the import of illegally procured plants uh, is a big part of the Lacey Act today. Yeah. Gibson Guitars was raided twice for illegal use of smuggled rare woods in in their guitars. Dang. <laughs> under the Lacey Act. Yeah. <laughs> so following this, there, there were more laws to come, uh, generally focused on narrow goals, like the Bald Eagle Protection Act of 1940. Mm-hmm. Just about bald eagles. Yeah. So for, for a long time, for decades, uh, the, the history of conservation law, uh, uh, at least regarding animals, is just about uh, the hunting, killing, and selling of specific animals like that. The first list of endangered species came with the Endangered Species Act of 1966. Okay. Uh, any species put on the list would be granted limited protections. Uh, the law also provided $15 million per year for the Fish and Wildlife Service to buy land for habitats. There were 78 species on that first list, mm-hmm. the so-called Class of 67. I'm hmm. just imagining them with little uh, graduation caps. <laughs> uh, we, we got some, some real classics you know, on the inaugural class here. The California condor, which is currently up to about 400 individuals from a low of 22 in the early 80s. Oh, that's, that's good. That's really good. Uh, following that shout-out in uh, Jurassic Park, they really rebounded. Uh, the Florida manatee, which is approaching reclassification to threatened. Oh. Yeah, that's pretty good. The, the Florida panther now has about 120 individuals, which is 10 times their, their one-time low of 12. You know, I really forget that Florida has panthers. They almost didn't. 
which is very sad. Yes. But I'm too busy being preoccupied with the alligators that could kill me and all the spiders that could kill me. I forget that there's a giant cat that could. Also a football team, but never mind. (laughs) The Indiana bat, whose numbers have actually reduced uh, in recent years due to uh, the emergence of new diseases that are taking hold in the population. The Indiana bat has very long ears. It is very goofy. Yeah. Uh, And the whooping crane, which uh, is going to come back. Uh, The the whooping crane was one of the earliest uh, sort of lightning rods for the conservation of of birds. A lot of conservationists were really into birds. A lot of them were ornithologists or bird spotters. You know, it's not really surprising. I feel like bird watchers are their own type of crazy. (laughs) But, I mean, from birds, you have wetlands, you have a, a migrational land. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to protect if you want to protect birds. So yes. it, it's a good flashpoint, I guess. But uh, the, the whooping crane has, has a wild population that is steadily growing now. Uh, at one time, there were less than 50 individuals. Aww. Now, all listed animals were vertebrates. You, you'll notice everything I mentioned was a, a mammal or a bird. There were some fish. I don't find fish that interesting. <laughs> but the federal definition of fish and wildlife yeah. didn't include other kinds of animals. You're not going to find a mollusk on this list because that was not fish or wildlife, according to the, the federal government's de- definition. Mm. They, they were not regulated by the, the Department of the Interior. Uh-huh. So this act was a start, but it was a start that was found lacking. So it was expanded with the Endangered Species Act of 1969. Okay. Uh, It it expanded on the Lacey Act's protections of game birds to mammals and reptiles and amphibians and mollusks and crustaceans. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the party. The first uh, time invertebrates could achieve legal protection. Oh, boy. Reptiles were added specifically to curb the poaching of gators. Ah, that makes sense. (laughs) It also added the ability to regulate species in danger of global extinction rather than just extinction in the United States. Okay. So again, talking about migratory birds, uh, you know, if they're only in the U.S. for a little bit, but they're, they're threatened due to, you know, habitat loss in Mexico or Canada or both. Yeah. It is still within the U.S.'s power to, to try to maintain their population. Uh, another provision of the 1969 Endangered Species Act uh, was to call for an international treaty, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. Oh. Or CITES, C-I-T-E-S. It's good they abbreviated it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it, it was signed in 1973 and went to an, uh, and went into effect in 1975. Currently has 182 states and the European Union as parties. Parties to the treaty are obligated to prohibit trade in protected species and confiscate specimens. Mm. Now this has three lists of its own. Oh boy! The the appendix one list is currently at least. 1,200 species threatened by extinction through trade. Mm-hmm. Appendix 2 uh, counts around 21,000 species that may be threatened by extinction without regulation of trade. Uh-huh. And Appendix 3 uh, is 170 species that uh, are each added by a party uh, to the treaty 
requesting assistance to protect their population of a species that may or may not be threatened globally. Okay. Like, Costa Rica added to uh, uh, Appendix 3 the two-toed sloth. Okay. Now, you you might be wondering, while we're doing all this preamble, why did we skip from from 1900 to the late 60s? Yeah. (laughs) What... What happened? Why wars? I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff in the meantime, but but what of that stuff relaunched American conservatism from this uh, uh, awestruck wonder at the frontier, like on Walden Pond and whatnot, to a scientific outlook, to a matter of like going out and surveying and animals and you know just counting how many frogs you saw today and presenting that in a binder, TV, and like. Nature documentaries? Nature documentaries <laughs> is really, really close, actually. Yeah. Uh, is the work of one Rachel Carson, who did write for radio and TV. But the, the big thing I want to talk about is her book, Silent Spring, published in 1962. Okay. Rachel Carson was a zoologist who uh, supported her widow mother during the Great Depression by writing radio programs for the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries. Oh. About how important fisheries are and the U.S. Bureau thereof. Okay. They, they were apparently very impressive. The, the Bureau did not expect them to be entertaining or, or popular. Yeah. Uh, and they were, actually. I mean, I wouldn't expect them to be. <laughs> Against all odds. Uh, she, she then worked in the field for the Bureau of Fisheries, monitoring populations, while building a career as a science writer. She was writing for magazines. She was co-writing other books. And, and yeah, like we said, other radio programs, some, some TV scripts came her way. Mm-hmm. But Silent Spring, uh, is the, the, her last book, the one she's most remembered for, is a book about the dangers of overuse of pesticides, particularly DDT. Ah, And she demonstrated how pesticides affect far much more than the pests they're meant to kill. Yeah. You you spray a whole forest that's not just getting the bug, it's getting the the plants and everything that eats the plants and everything that eats the now-dead bug, and it goes through the entire biome. Yeah. People Uh, could really read this book now. Including uh, DDT's uh, uh, ability, once it is ingested, to break down into compounds that thin the eggshells of predatory birds. And uh, the the very strong link between uh, DDT spraying and the decline of the American bald eagle, the peregrine falcon, and other birds that were at incredible risk at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Both of those have since recovered yeah. very impressively. We see a lot of peregrine falcons around here. <laughs> For those people out there, city of Chicago has quite a peregrine falcon-like habitat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> they love sky ri- high-rises. There we go. They love high-rises. That, that dive hunting is, is really good. It doesn't have to be a tree. It can be a 43-story building. Yeah. Yeah first apartment I lived in after college, they nested on top of the building and would just dive off the side. So I'd just sit at my window and watch. <laughs> uh, they also put up a, a camera up there that you could watch. watch you could tune watch in on babies. your TV and watch the, the nest. Mm-hmm. It was very exciting. So this book had the direct effect of creating the EPA, for one. Before the EPA existed, the Department of Agriculture was in charge of regulating the use of pesticides. Huh. It was also in charge of promoting American agribusiness. Yeah. So, 
Like she testified before Congress of, uh, that this was a conflict of interest. Yeah. And the EPA was created uh, uh, to, to recognize that fact among, you know, other duties it has. It's the Environmental Protection Agency. It does mm-hmm. a lot. One of the things the EPA did was ban the use of DDT, except for uh, uh, certain exceptions in, like, public health crises. Mm-hmm. Like, there is still a stockpile of DDT that can be called on, uh, but you, you've really got to prove you really need it ever since 1972. And what would you call upon it for? Sudden malaria outbreak. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of the early 70s, that does bring us to... The Endangered Species Act of 1973, the currently in effect Endangered Species Act, the, the one that counts, the one that matters, the one that this episode's mostly about. Yeah. <laughs> Context matters, folks. So the, the limits of the 1969 act came to light in a 1970 fight over the sperm whale. Uh-huh. Now, the, the Department of the Interior recognized that the sperm whale's numbers were decreasing. They were a vulnerable population that needed protection. Whereas the uh, Secretary of the Navy objected because whale oil was still in use in American submarines. Ah. The sperm whale did manage to get listed, even so. But the, this struggle uh, showed the, the limits of the law in actually achieving its stated goals. Mm-hmm. So a team of scientists and naturalists were, were brought together to draft this new Endangered Species Act. Uh, that team was led by Russell E. Train, who is head of the EPA and uh, a founding member of the World Wildlife Fund. Huh. So he, he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. He's yeah. clearly invested yeah. in, in this advocacy. The ESA, the Endangered Species Act, is co-administered by the Fish and Wildlife Service, which is part of the Department of the Interior, Mm -hmm. and the National Marine Fisheries Service, which is part of the uh, uh, Department of Commerce. Mm -hmm. They handle all all of the seagoing animals. Okay. And uh, Fish and Wildlife handles all of the land and bird and freshwater animals. Okay. Yeah. So only some of the fish. Only some of the fish. The ESA's goal is to prevent the extinction of plant and animal life and to maintain endangered populations by removing threats to their survival. Mm-hmm. So we're talking species, subspecies, and even distinct population segments can be added to the list, quote, solely on the best scientific and commercial data available. Mm-hmm. It only depends on, on the best scientific data for how threatened they are. No, nothing else can come into consideration for listing. Okay. Any animal that, that is petitioned for listing is given a comprehensive assessment of that species' status and their threats. Uh, species that are listed are then announced with a public notice and uh, open for public hearings if they are requested. Okay. So if, if you find out there is a new endangered animal, you have a right to go, hey, Department of Inter- the Interior... Let's do a hearing. I got, I got questions. I disagree about the <laughs> snail. Like, what? Who if, actually does that? If you disagree about the snail, you can say so. Huh. Yeah. Uh, the ESA requires that critical habitat be designated within a year of a species listing. This uh, is not always met under the deadline. For, in some cases, it is. Some cases have, have been waiting for years and years and still not received critical habitat, but it is a requirement in the law. What does that mean? 
Well, a critical habitat zone is an area that, that must contain all areas essential to the conservation of imperiled species. Okay. If it's a bird with certain nesting requirements, it, it must include, you know, the kind of trees they nest in. Uh, if there's a certain breeding ground, it must include that. Or wherever they hunt or feed, it has to include that. Okay. All, all of the things. Yeah. Now, those can be designated on public or private land, and federal agencies are prohibited from authorizing, funding, or carrying out actions that, quote, destroy or adversely modify critical habitat. That is huge. Yeah. Because even on private land, if you're going to do some large-scale development that might, say, endanger a lot of habitat, mm-hmm. that, that might, like to keep with our bird thing, knock down a lot of trees that they use to nest in, that's going to take a permit. Yeah. And the government is not allowed to give you that permit. Mm -hmm. So establishing critical habitat can make a kind of de facto nature reserve, at least for certain uses of the land. Mm -hmm. Uh, Listed species also uh, require the creation of an endangered species recovery plan. Uh, within three years of listing, although in practice, it's often closer to six. Mm-hmm. The uh, Endangered Species Recovery Plan must describe the goals, costs, and a predicted timeline for a species to no longer be endangered. You know, that that's the goal, delisting. Yeah. If a species population grows and threats to its survival are eliminated, it may be delisted. Uh, which is fantastic. It it means it's no longer under threat. We don't got to worry about it. They're taking care of themselves. Yeah. Go off, you you tiny, tiny foxes. Yes. Congratulations. How often does that happen? By 2012, 28 species had been delisted due to recovery. Oh. So by 2018, that's at least 29, I guess. Yeah. Uh, 25 more have been downgraded from endangered to threatened, okay. which is pretty good, too. Ten species have been removed due to extinction. Aww. However, seven of them may have already been in- extinct in the wild by the time they were listed. Mm. It may have been too late for them. Yeah. Now, the, the ESA has not been left untouched since 1973. Mm-hmm. Laws get amended all the time. And also, its implementation varies a lot with the heads of the relevant departments. If you've got a new uh, uh, head of the EPA, if you've got a new head of Fish and Wildlife, new Secretary of the Interior, who's taking orders from a new president, things change. Mm -hmm. So, in 1978, there were a series of of large amendments. Some of them uh, uh, regarded the establishment of critical habitat. One made that mandatory. That's why it's mandatory. Hooray. Another required the establishment of critical habitat take economic impact into consideration. Mm-hmm. So like I said, that, that is not the fact now. But in 1978, suddenly, it was. The, the congressional report called it, quote, a loophole which could be readily abused by any secretary who is vulnerable to political pressure or who is not sympathetic to the basic purposes of the Endangered Species Act. Yeah. It, it gave the uh, Department of the Interior slash Commerce the ability to say on their own, actually, no, this new dam you want to build is more important than uh, uh, the existence of this frog. Yeah. 
Now, in 1982, Congress removed that requirement as, as part of their, their flat-out re- rejection of Reagan's executive order that required economic analysis of all government agency actions. Mm. Unlike the, the late 70s Congress, the early 80s Congress said, uh, effectively, there's, there's more important things, and uh, preventing the extinction of species is one of them. Yeah. 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 Now, the the 1978 amendments also created the Endangered Species Committee, which still exists, a seven-person cabinet-level board with the power to make exceptions. Uh Huh. Those seven people are the administrator of the EPA, the administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which the National Marine Fishery Service is a part of, the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, a representative from whatever state uh, it is that the the petitioner or the project petitioning for an exception exists in uh, the Secretary of Agriculture, the Secretary of the Army, and the Secretary of the Interior. Mm-hmm. Now, in order to grant an exception, they have to uh, vote for the exception five out of seven or more. Okay. This committee was nicknamed the God Squad because they they can play God. They have the power to decide that making a a species or or a local population extinct is worth it. Yeah. That's fucked up. (laughs) In their first meeting, they they heard one of the cases that they were created for. Mm -hmm. Like, there is this problem. We're already amending it. Let's create a board to deal with this problem. Okay, you've been created. Here's the problem. It was just like pop, pop, pop. Right. Uh-huh. And the, the petitioner for an exception was the Gray Rocks Dam in Wyoming. Uh, a number of power companies are getting together. We would like to build this dam. We would like to provide this clean hydroelectric power. By the way, that would have an impact on uh, this whooping crane population, which at the time had about 62 individuals. And yes, they, they did approve that exception. Are those cranes dead? The cranes are doing okay. They're doing okay? Like, na- nationwide, yes. Okay. The only other approved exemption came in 1991. Like, th- this is a- they've only gotten that five out of seven vote twice. Okay. Yet. So that, far, ever. That makes me feel a little better. And that second time was in 1991, when logging interests filed one against the Northern Spotted Owl. No! Leave the owls alone! <laughs> The northern spotted owl is a picky owl, will only nest in old-growth forest. Yeah. Uh, It was overturned by a judge before this exemption could go into effect because President Bush had improper influence on their decision in cabinet meetings. Ah. Like, go go back to who those seven are. A lot of them are, like, cabinet uh, uh, secretaries. Yeah. President's not allowed to—he's not one of the seven. No, no, no. So the judge said, that doesn't count. Try again. So all these delays in suits going back and forth lasted long enough that the Clinton administration uh, was sworn in and, and took charge of the whole thing. Uh-huh. And uh, they solved it by protecting 10 million acres of old growth forest habitat and limiting logging to, I think it was a billion board feet per year. Okay. So uh, a eventual sort of win for the owl. Yay. 
not as protected as it would have been, but not as much of an exemption as it would have been. Yeah. In 1986, Reagan limited the protective status of critical habitat, and very few habitats were designated through the entire 90s. That regulation is still in place, though it is currently suspended. Okay. The, the George W. Bush administration put up a lot of barriers to listing new species. Uh, with Again, without amending the law, but just like instructions to members of the bureaucracy how to interpret the law. Mm-hmm. Instructions like uh, interior department personnel were told they could use information from files that refute petitions, but not anything that supports petitions filed to protect species. Uh-huh. So you can give all of the information you want about the no's. Yes. But you can't say anything about the yeses. Correct. They, they changed the way species were evaluated under the act by considering where the species currently lived rather than where they used to exist. So that really takes the teeth out of any uh, consideration of habitat loss. Yeah. Like every animal has 100% of the, the geographic area that it currently has, like tautologically. Yeah. Yeah. And senior officials repeatedly dismissed the views of scientific advisors who said that species should be protected. Mm -hmm. Now, you can see the effect of these changes by just looking at how many species are listed per year under different administrations. Like uh, Gerald Ford, his administration listed 15 a year, uh, which was the low for a while. It, it It grew a bit with every successive administration until you get to President Clinton listing 65 species per year. Then you get to George W. Bush, whose administration listed eight species per year. One sign, uh, besides just those straight numbers, that the Clinton administration had at least some interest in conservation was that he picked Al Gore as his vice president. Yeah. Who wrote a foreword to a later edition of Silent Spring. Yeah. Like... There's a connection there. There you go. So that that brings us to today. And I wanted to talk a bit about the Endangered Species Act today and, and share some examples of recently listed species uh, and also just a general uh, round number of about how many species are on it today. Uh, but in order to, to check those, in order to check that information, it is stored on a, a web portal called the Environmental Conservation Online System which is great most of the time. During the researching of this episode, it was unavailable due to a lapse in government funding. Yep. So it, it's a fun little joke that the shutdown got in the way of, of me doing a slightly better sourced episode. But It's also really messed up. But yeah, that, that resource was down for more than a month for anyone actually doing e- the work of ecology or trying to submit a petition to protect uh, an endangered or threatened animal. Mm-hmm. That's shameful. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's right up there with the FDA and other work of the EPA and the National Park Service and mm-hmm. EBT and all the things I like my government to do, which are the things that are for some reason deemed non-essential. The first things to go. <laughs> So that we're going to take a quick break and be back with the international perspective. Okay. 
everybody. Hello. So we've talked about what it means when someone says, oh, that's on the endangered species list in the U.S., uh-huh. But extinction is a global problem. If, if somebody tells me that, like, oh, there's an endangered, you know, animal in Europe, like, who, whose list is that? Yeah. What, what What's going on there? Yeah. I want, I want to know. Well, the list they're probably talking about is the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species. It is the world's most comprehensive inventory of the global conservation status of biological species. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk a bit about IUCN to start with, the the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Uh Uh-huh. It was established in 1948 by UNESCO and by then-UNESCO head Julian Huxley. Okay. The Huxley family was was an interesting group of folks. You've probably heard of his brother Aldous, who wrote Brave New World. Oh. You may not have heard of his uh, other brother, Andrew, who won a Nobel Prize for discovering how nerve impulses work. Oh. So <laughs> what an interesting family. They they were a real crew, the Huxleys. Uh so IUCN, their their priority is collecting and publishing information uh to provide science-based advice to governments. Mm-hmm. They they are not activists, they aren't really advocates, they're educators, and educators specifically too large bodies to actually do something with the information. Mm -hmm. Uh, They also helped set up the World Wildlife Fund, which would provide a good share of IUCN's budget. Okay. So now the the secretariat for uh, the CITES international treaty we talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. that was originally a part of IUCN. One of their jobs was to was to do the administration of that treaty and, and check in with the, the various uh, parties and member nations. Mm-hmm. That sense spun off to its own thing, but it's where it started. But the most visible product it creates, the, the thing that it does that gets the most press is by far the red list. Mm-hmm. It's not the only list they make. They they have a huge list of national parks and wildlife reserves all around the globe. Mm-hmm. But the red list of, of endangered and threatened species, that's the, the premier uh, product. That's the star of their portfolio. Like I said, unlike uh, the Department of the Interior, IUCN doesn't do anything in, okay. in practical terms. Yeah. They, they, they aren't. Uh, providing for habitats. They aren't denying developers from, you know, bulldozing the rainforest. Mm-hmm. They just measure what's in the rainforest. Okay. So so the purpose of the Red List, it, it is used to measure impact of conservation efforts and provide goals and set priorities for the actual work done by, say, international treaties or NGOs. Mm-hmm. They, they provide education and awareness with the information provided in the list. And data that is collected on species is often used for other purposes. Like if there's a species that is known to carry disease, we have all this data on its range and how that range has been changing over the last 20 years. Yeah. That's valuable. Yeah. Or also like, hey, we, we surveyed this plant. It's been found to have medicinal properties Oh, shoot. Where can we find that plant? Ah, let's go get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the first red list was published in 1965. Uh, and the goal is for every species that, that gets surveyed should be 
resurveyed to, to have their status checked every five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're added by submitting your, your research into the population to IUCN, who then evaluate it uh, on their own published criteria that you can find online. And criteria are things like uh, total population and population change, area of occupancy and the rate of occupancy change. Uh, like they're, they're very clear, easy to read, easy to follow. I, I am not a scientist. Yeah. But every time I read it, I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's, yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, following the, the collection and review of this data, a species is slotted into one of a certain number of categories. Uh, a species is either extinct yeah. uh, or extinct in the wild, mm-hmm. which are both pretty self-explanatory. They, they declare a species extinct when uh, it is beyond a reasonable doubt that there are no living uh, uh, individuals anywhere. Yeah. Extinct in the wild if they're uh, by the same token, except for ones raised in captivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that, then we get into the the three uh, uh, main categories that that you know you can do something about. By the time something is extinct, it's too late. Yeah. Outside of a Jurassic Park situation. Yeah. Which I have mentioned for the second time in this episode. Yeah. Well, there was an article I read this past year about this. I don't. What was it? It was like I forgot what type of animal exactly it was. It was something that was almost looked like a red panda, but it wasn't. It was some <laughs> other thing that they thought was extinct because mm-hmm. there was only one known sighting of it ever and that was like 100 years ago <laughs> and then this woman felt came across it again like that's a really old red panda years. looking thing i forgot what animal it was <laughs> i don't remember but like I, there was like she got a picture and it was very much like that type of face mm-hmm. but like brown it's one of those animals where you're like, well, it's not like a panda or a fox. Or it's like a weird little thing of its own marmal, you know, mammalness. <laughs> I know I'm great at telling stories and remembering facts here, but there can be weird exceptions where, like, yeah, suddenly yeah. they come back from the dead, and people are like, "Well, dang!" But then it's like, "Well, I saw one and I took a picture, and then escaped into the woods, and now we haven't seen any more of them." A, a more common story like that is the coelacanth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe now it is extinct. Like that maybe. one could have gone and died. We maybe. don't know. But I don't know if I got to, a chance to name those three categories before we went off on it. But uh, they're, they're the critically endangered, the endangered, and the vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the criteria that will get you listed as critically endangered is if there's been an 80% or more reduction in population size over the last 10 years or three generations. Mm-hmm. If they have an area of occupancy of less than 10 square kilometers, if there are less than 50 mature individuals alive in the wild, if uh, analysis projects at least a 50% chance of extinction within 10 years, those those are things that will automatically uh, get you added to the critically endangered status. Okay. Some examples are pangolins, Aww. the addicts, or the European mink. I know what one of those is. The Attix is a kind of uh, horned antelope. Oh. Uh, and the European mink is a kind of weasel. Uh, I figured as much yeah. of that, but... Above critically endangered is just plain endangered. To, to repeat the same criteria, uh, endangered species have 50% or more reduction in population size over the last 10 years or three generations. 
an area of occupancy of less than 500 square kilometers or less than 250 mature individuals or a 20% or, or more uh, chance of extinction within the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Some examples of those include the pig-nosed turtle, Aww. the blue whale, hmm. and the Asian elephant. Hmm. Vulnerable species uh, are, are the next level above that. Uh, these are species that have a 10% or more, but less than 20% chance of going extinct within the next 10 years. Less than 1,000 mature individuals, less than 2,000 square kilometers of geographic area, a 30% reduction uh, over the last 10 years or three generations. Uh, and for vulnerable species, we, we have like the, the great white shark, the northern fur seal, and the giant armadillo. Hmm. Near threatened are species that do not qualify for any of the above, but there's a chance that they could. Okay. Uh, if, if steps aren't taken, they're, they're on a path that may lead them toward vulnerability or, or endangerment. Mm-hmm. Things like the desert rain frog, the giant Australian cuttlefish, or the royal penguin. Aw, makes me sad. <laughs> then the, the last few categories are uh, species of least concern. These are species that have plenty of data backing up their petition, but they aren't found to have any reasonable chance of, of being in danger. Data deficient, which is just what it sounds like. Yeah. They, the data they have is not enough to, to slot them in anywhere to, to make an informed decision. Or not evaluated. Not evaluated is a huge number of the world's species. Yeah. <laughs> just absolutely massive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, they have only assessed 96,500 species. Now, when I was giving my examples, I was looking at their website for, for your you know, example animals that, like, you'd hear the name and you'd have a picture in your head. Yeah. So I was looking at mammals. Yeah. Uh, except for the cuttlefish. But <laughs> <laughs> but all varieties of animal uh, and plant and fungus and coral, well, coral's animals, but they keep it as a separate thing for, like, because coral reefs are important. But the, all, all manner of life are surveyed. Uh-huh. Of all assessed species, IUCN lists over 27% in one of those three threatened categories. 26,500 total species. Oh boy. That is 40% of all categorized uh, amphibians, one in three uh, uh, assessed reef-building corals, and one quarter of all assessed mammal species. That's a lot. It's a lot. Now, their goal is to assess a total of 160,000 species by the end of the year 2020. That is a huge leap to go from uh, less than 100,000 to 160,000. That's a lot. You got to keep in mind that in the year 2002, they had only assessed under 20,000 species. Dang. So while it is a huge increase... They have been making huge increases yeah. in the scope of this list. Yeah. One area they have a lot of room for improvement. Uh, I mentioned that they have assessed uh, fungus species. Mm-hmm. And in order to meet this 160,000 goal, their, their fungus goal is to assess 14,500 fungus species. Uh-huh. Would you like to guess how many they have currently assessed? Two. 56. Oh, goodness. 
They got a lot to do. There is room to grow in the fungus category, to be sure. <laughs> is the fungus category the top priority, though? Of assessment. <laughs> it clearly has not been in the past. If you are a mycologist, if you know a mycologist, please get in touch with IUCN. They need your help. So we, we have these lists. The, the two biggest lists, at least the biggest lists as a United States citizen. Yeah. And there are so, so many others, as mentioned. So now what? Yeah, now what? I mean, a, a list is a tool. And... What matters is what people do with it. Mm -hmm. So, darling, what have you learned? I have gotten sad. <laughs> yeah, I've you learned, did. I've gotten sad. I have learned about the list. <laughs> and uh, I guess to question what list I'm being told about. Yeah. Because we talked about how here in the U.S., like, the, the rules change mm -hmm. about how to do stuff. So it makes me wonder when they say, like, oh, yeah, we've had, like, less added. Or we don't really feel like, we feel like this is moving in a positive direction. Like, is it really? Mm -hmm. Or did you just change some rules did, to decide that it's better? Is the species recovering or did you lower the bar? Yeah. Yeah. Did you just change how you, you know, figure out your percentages? <laughs> Which is kind of how a lot of stuff is done here when it comes to, like, say, conservation or public health or public mm -hmm. assistance we can just adjust numbers mm -hmm. and how we judge it make things look better for ourselves it does encourage you to look at what the scientists are saying and not what the the fish and wildlife service is saying yes also every time you said fish and wildlife service i just thought of the invisible man yes <laughs> i'm surprised it took this long well i didn't want to interrupt <laughs> <laughs> but every a, single time. That's a first. Darling, do you want to tell the listeners why it made you think of H.G. Wells's classic novel? Oh, not that. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about the 2000-2001 short-lived TV show, The Invisible Man, which is great. You oh, should watch it. Oh, you mean I-Man. Yes, I-Man. <laughs> uh, got like an undercover hidden agency of the government mm -hmm. that's manipulating this poor test subject mm -hmm. who is the invisible man to work for them but they are hiding under the fishing game yeah <laughs> department and it's great one of the best running gags is how they they manage to justify their involvement in all these various mysteries yes anytime they'd go somewhere and like here's my badge from fishing game <laughs> What does that have to do with this? <laughs> so so many briefings where the chief just has to do some bureaucratic rigmarole. Yes. Yeah. You should watch it. His partner is very good. It's all very good. <laughs> I know not a lot of people would say that, but I do. Didn't they get transferred to the Office of Native American Affairs in the second season? I think for like an episode. Okay. <laughs> they got transferred to a lot of different offices. That's true. They just kind of rotated. They'd go back to Fish and Game and then get transferred somewhere else. And also the most low-budget, underfunded office ever. Which really turned the show's budget in, into a feature. Yeah. It was just part of the joke. Yeah, yeah. that's good. I love how many jokes they made in that that were about <laughs> the situation of that show. Yeah, the, the office can't afford it. That's why we don't have it. Oh, really? We just don't have the production budget. <laughs> Well, we're going to go reminisce about uh, old sci-fi original programming. 
and be right back with your letters. I don't think it was sci-fi original. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. We got a bumper crop of letters, so let's just get right to it. At the end of the last episode, I wanted to hear everybody's favorite extinct creature. And apparently that is a prompt that brings people to their emails. I guess so. Uh, So Lord Smaff wrote in, uh, their favorite extinct creature is the Tasmanian tiger. Uh, And a special mention to the blue macaw. Uh, which was just recently officially declared extinct, and they are hoping more animals don't follow suit, such as bees, because we need them, and giraffes, because they're adorable. I think they're just goofy as heck, which is a kind of adorable. It is adorable. In some cases. Like, the world should not exist without giraffes, (laughs) because you look at that and you're like, why? Why are you a thing? But I love you. So thank you, Lord Smaff. Thank you. Peter writes in with three, whoa, greedy. The first is the mysterious Silphium plant that, that went extinct in the times of antiquity. Uh, it was over-harvested by the uh, uh, Imperial Romans for its reported contraceptive capabilities. Nice. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It is theorized this, that this plant might have something to do with why our, our heart shape Welcome to uh, uh, Valentine season coming up soon. Mm-hmm. Comes from this plant's like seed pods. Oh, yeah. The last one recorded in history uh, was given to Emperor Nero as a curiosity, and he probably just munched on that. Mm. Yeah. Number two, Peter's favorite dinosaur as a child was Dionychus, the predator that more closely resembles Jurassic Park's Velociraptors than the actual historical fossil record Velociraptor. Yeah. Yeah. It's a much cooler name, though. Yeah. And number three, the creatures known as Hallucigenia, an order, I think it was declared an order, of Cambrian-era legged worms that are so darn weird that it took a long time and a lot of research for paleontologists to have a reasonable guess at which end was up. Legged worms are just bad. Thanks, Peter. (laughs) Aiden writes in, uh, they've been listening to History Honeys for a while, but it's their first email to us. Glad to hear from you, Aiden. Uh, also been a longtime listener of your stuff and has got gotten caught up with our show over this past year, which is some dedication. <laughs> uh, There's 69 whole episodes. Oh, dang. Why didn't we just end now? <laughs> now we have to go to 169. Now we have to go to 420. Or that. <laughs> Aiden's uh, favorite extinct creature would be dinosaurs, uh, specifically triceratops or pterodactyls. Thanks, Aiden. Chris wrote in and sent us a pair of dog pictures. Aww. Very cute. And a pair of prompt responses. The current one uh, is that their, their favorite extinct creature is 
Quetzalcoatlus, the largest flying animal known to humankind for now. A, a wingspan of 16 meters, uh, larger than, than most people's houses. And it could pick up a grown adult and carry it off wherever if grown adults existed at the same time as this creature. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> And as for things to look forward to in the coming year, Chris has got some fitness goals in order to uh, uh, help manage their, their recent uh, diagnosis of diabetes and for cosplaying as the player character from Fallout 2 later this year. Awesome. Thanks for writing in, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Sarah writes in with a show suggestion that is very good, so I'm not going to share it. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> Joe sent us a letter and some kitty cat pictures. And Joe's favorite extinct creature is not merely a species, but a specific individual, Lonesome George, the last surviving Pinta Island tortoise. Lonesome George was an example as as the last individual of a species, uh, you know, of the impact of human civilization on biodiversity and, and just trying to raise awareness until George himself also passed away. And also answering uh, our, our next most recent prompt about what you're looking forward to in the year to come, the recent Donkey Kong 64 101% quote-unquote speedrun stream uh, that, that raised tens of thousands of dollars for Mermaid UK uh, has given Joe a, a sense of optimism about their future as a trans person and, and living their life uh, authentically, without hiding. And so thank you very much, Joe. Yes. Uh, Hallie wrote in uh, and shared some dog pictures. No. Uh, and also talks about how sometimes we put an episode out there and they think, man, I'm not sure I'm going to be invested in this topic. And they're always wrong. <laughs> and yes, this is related to the Office Supply episode. <laughs> I'm very proud of that episode. <laughs> <laughs> Hallie also uh, answered some prompts. Favorite part of 2018. Uh, 2018 was a hard year, but their roommate officially adopted her dog. Yay! Uh, and also Hallie went to Maine uh, for the first time. Uh, and something they're looking forward to in 2019. Uh, family coming to visit uh, them in the West Coast, and some optimism on getting a new job. Hooray! And as for favorite extinct creature, Stellar Sea Cow. A large part of the reason why it went extinct was it was just too trusting of Europeans, uh, who then wiped it out because it was an easy target for fur trading and seal hunting. And so that should go to teach everyone listening, never trust a European. Also, giant ground sloths and Irish elks get honorable mentions. So thank you, yeah. Hallie. Yeah, one of my favorite things that happened last year was your roommate adopting that dog, because I get to see it. I enjoy getting to see all the animals people send us. <laughs> Final Gamer wrote in yet again, and they, wouldn't you know it, big old dino head, in order to avoid double dipping, uh, they went deep in their dino fandom. To tell us the tale of Caprosuchus. Caprosuchus? I don't know much Greek. Uh, it, it is Greek for boar crocodile. There you go. It was 20 feet long with a two foot long skull, giant tusks, and, and big old legs that could gallop. Just imagine a galloping crocodile and you're in the, the neighborhood 
what this thing looked like in uh, Cretaceous Africa. Thank you very much, Final Gamer. Uh, Rick writes in uh, as a recent newcomer to the Honey Bunch. Aww. Uh, and only started listening to the show around the new year. Uh, oh, but wow. has made their way through half of the episodes oh, already. Wow. You are dedicated. And Rick shared some very nice thoughts with us of, about our show and how listening to us brings some good things uh, into their life. So thank you very much oh, for sharing. Yeah, thank you. Um, and their favorite extinct creature is uh, probably the Hast Eagle, which was a giant bird of prey that lived as recently as the 1400s and was said to have up to a 10-foot wingspan. Uh, Rick is fond of birds and birds of prey specifically, so definitely has a soft spot for uh, this giant of the sky. <laughs> so thank you, Rick, for writing in and keep keep going. You're almost there. Halfway. We got a second person named Rick writing in this episode. Different Rick. Rick Di with a C. Different Rick. Uh, different Rick's favorite extinct animal is either the Anhydrodon, which is a 10-foot-long otter ancestor. Yes. More otters, more love. Or the Megatherium, a 3.8-ton sloth yes. ancestor. You know what? I wouldn't be able to pick my favorite either. I completely understand your dilemma. Really, really big cousins of really cute little friends. I'm going to imagine that these really big cousins are just as freaking cute. They could be. They yeah. Could be. Yeah. We'll, we'll never know. There weren't a lot of people taking pictures of them back when they roamed the earth. They're very cute. <laughs> just imagine this otter on my water bottle, but giant. <laughs> You'd be so hydrated. But Rick also sent a picture of, of a few cats oh. that I did not realize until reading this email were different cats. Your, oh. cat, your cats look very similar, Rick. Cry baby and Yoda. Thank you. We're going to start and end uh, these letters with the, same prompt, with the same prompt response. The question of what's your favorite extinct creature also leads Claritic to, to opine on the Tasmanian tiger, good old thylacine. And uh, she does give a quick shout out to our composer, Thylacinus. Thank hey. you for the wonderful music. I would have done it, except I knew there was a letter coming up that did it for me. Yeah. <laughs> I promise. But... Uh, she goes into more detail about the story, specifically how it is curious that it was extincted so recently it may not be extinct. There have been recurring sightings over recent decades uh, that, that raise the question, is there a small population out there in, in the, the bush that we don't know about, we can't survey because it's an inhospitable place to go send scientists looking for them? Mm -hmm. Or are these other creatures being uh, mistaken for them because they, they were extinct so recently that we have this legend about them? We have photographs. They are in the public imagination. They are in people's mind's eye when yeah. they see something move in the dark. Yeah. That's roughly the right size. And she, she makes the point in the conclusion of her letter that the, the only reason it's not just your, your classic, you know, cryptid case of... A, of you know, your Bigfoots and, and your Hodags, is that they they were real. Yeah. They were definitely real at one point. Yeah. Perhaps real today? Uh, unlikely, but possible. Yeah. Yeah. 
Thank you very much, Claire Tick. And thank you to everybody for writing in. If you would like to send us a letter, where can those go, dear? Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And we would love to hear your show suggestions, like Sarah. Great to hear from you, Sarah. Uh, or your corrections, your, your questions, stories you'd like to share. And, of course, our regular prompt responses. Yes. So, darling... A very special holiday is coming up. Yes. Our third annual Valencrimes episode. What would you like to ask the folks at home? I'd like them to share something that really connects us in the, this loving time of life. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your favorite kidnapping. <laughs> or kidnapper. Or, yeah. You, you know, know. Either side of the coin. Yeah. You can't have one without the other. It's true. <laughs> it's, that's very true. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna be feeling the love in our next episode <laughs> in a very creepy way and again where can those go history honey's podcast at gmail.com while you're out there we would really appreciate it if you gave us a, a rating and review on itunes or stitcher or google play or wherever else you can manage uh every review tells us you know just what we're doing that connects with people and, and every number of stars helps us Get a little bit of that uh, algorithm magic to pop up in somebody else's pocket. Yeah. You can also tell your friends. Word of mouth does probably the most good. The absolute most good. So so keep it up. <laughs> Make it your 2019 goal to tell a new friend every month about our show. That would be lovely. That would be kind of cool. people made a goal to like tell 12 people. Yeah. Yeah. You could do it all at once and get the goal all the way and be like, check, completed my 2019 goal. Now I just have to learn how to do 50 sit-ups. You don't really have to learn to do it. You have to, like, get used to doing it. Now I just have eight more novels to read. Oh, that ain't happening. (laughs) (laughs) How did I used to go through, like, a book a day? You didn't have podcasts back then. This is true. We haven't mentioned it in a while, but uh, Sex Archie is back from a hiatus. Yeah. After the holiday break, we've got uh, two episodes behind us. And the, the day after you're hearing us here, another one will be coming out for you. Yeah. Hopefully it's good. Yeah, we're 50, 50-ish right now. <laughs> I wouldn't say it was good. And if you're curious on, on what's prompting that reaction, check out Sex Archie. We, we have a lot of fun working through our feelings. Yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of feelings. I have a lot of feelings. But I guess that's all the information we have to share. Yeah. Uh, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with With your your honey. honey.